HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Will Harris, and today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures. Welcome to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wides, your host. Do you remember Dorothy Hamill? Remember her? She was a figure skating star of the 1976 Olympics. I was old enough to be watching. She was also the creator of the famous Hamill Camel skating spin. There's a move now called the Hamill Camel. And of course, she was also the wearer of the infamous eponymous hairdo the Dorothy Hamill or the wedge as it was also called where they would cut your hair in a wedge shape all around your head sort of coming up from your neck out so that it kind of stacked up on the back of your neck and then the sides could be worn either like straight down and curled like an inverted cantaloupe or you could use your blow dryer and a round brush and you could feather it you could blow it back and feather it which was like the ultimate late 70s look for a teenage girl. And actually most of the boys too. Um, it, the, the, it was the look, the look of the 70s until Farrah came along. It was kind of at the same time, but then Farrah kind of knocked Dorothy out of the rink, so to speak. And Farrah came along and then we all had to grow our hair out. We couldn't have the wedge anymore because then we had to have this long hair that was like winged, winged back. That's what we used to say. It was winged back, wong Alongside our faces. Well, guess who was sassily sporting the Hamill Wedge back in the late 70s? Oh, yeah, this lady, your host, me. I had the perfect hair for the Hamill Wedge. It was thick and straight and obedient, like your average Republican. I mean, I rocked the Hamill. I have such a, like, Neanderthal peasant-type head of hair and hairline that my wedge actually started pretty much like where my neck meets my shoulders like at the top of my spine and the wedge all went all the way up to that bump 
on the back of your head. You know that ridge that has a name? I don't know the name. I had like a six-inch wedge. Six-inch. I was rocking the wedge. I mean, you could have skied down the back of my head in the Olympics. I had such a wedge. I had a wedge with a vengeance because after finally breaking free from the horrendously crooked and excruciatingly dorky haircuts that my mother had insisted on giving me herself... And then a really bad experience with a shag given to me by a local barber. I finally grew a thick, straight, obedient pair of grapes and insisted that I be taken to a real hair salon. Not a barber, not the bathroom, toilet seat, a real hair salon where women went, where ladies went, where real women who got real haircuts and used a blow dryer and sprayed aerosol Aquanet from a can and smoked at the same time and did their nails and wore Sassoon jeans and listened to Donna Summer. Not like in my house. These women weren't listening to Pete Seeger and Mozart and wearing homemade clothes and heating their houses with coal and fermenting pickles in their bathrooms. Slightly different cultural paradigm. I needed to escape the little fucked up house on the prairie basically so off I went and I sat down in the chair of Denise well actually I sat on like a special booster seat in her chair because I was like 11 and I was probably four feet tall at the time and so I sat in Denise's chair and I looked Denise in the eye which was hard because she was like six feet tall of pure thick dumb as a hairbrush woman and I said give me the hamel And so she did. And as she started cutting and then blow drying and smoking and spraying, she said to me back there on Long Island in 1978, I love working with your hair. Your hair is so soft. Your hair is like butter. Yes, Denise, the hairdresser, was the first one to use the phrase, it's like butter. Fifteen years later, Mike Myers would make it famous with his Linda Richmond character based on his mother-in-law. But back in that smoky suburban salon, dumb old Denise used to say it to me every time she cut my hair. Your hair, it's like butter. Now, poor Denise, she was so dumb. She probably didn't have many choices of careers other than to be a hairdresser. This is not to imply that hairdressers are dumb people. But back then, women had limited choices. My hairdresser, Nadia, is a lovely woman and very bright, by the way. Now, of course, if we're today, Denise could be, you know, a reality TV star or an auto-tune pop star, or she could even be governor and a vice presidential candidate. But back then, we still required that our entertainers and our political leaders had just a modicum of intelligence. I mean, even Farah turned out to be a pretty darn good actress after all. And Walter Mondale may have been the quintessential effete northern liberal, but nobody could say he wasn't smart. Losing 49 states to one to Ronald Reagan, notwithstanding. Now, back then, someone as bright as Denise had to go into a career that wasn't intellectually demanding, like being a hairdresser. And she knew, oh, Denise knew in her very limited way that there was nothing better, nothing silkier, nothing more luxurious or sinfully delicious or delightful than butter. That butter was better. And if you came upon hair that was like butter, you'd call your mother and you'd tell her. So I loved Denise and I loved getting my hair cut by her for the attention, which I sorely needed. But this this was also, it, it was like I was being like worshipped 
for my hair. Denise loved to touch my hair. I know it sounds a little creepy and sexual, but I was young. I was innocent. Now, this was also in the golden age of not butter. And Denise was probably quietly grieving inside for real butter. Because remember, it was the late 70s, and this was deep in the era of all things fake butter. And margarine was ruling the game. Now, in those recessionary post-war decades, that war being World War II, we bought the alarmist, ill-informed, big food-funded scam that eating industrial oils whipped up with dyes and solvents and hydrogen and artificial flavorings and formed into sticks and little tubs was better for us and was going to prevent us from having heart attacks. Not to mention that those products were cheaper than real butter. It was just generally speaking the era where fake was always better. Polyester was better and cheaper than cotton. Bean bags were better and cheaper than chairs. Formula was better, but not cheaper, than breast milk. The monkeys were better than the beetles. Well, no. No, no, no. And fake foodiness doppelgangers like margarine were better and cheaper than the real thing. Butter. But most important, not only was butter going to give us heart attacks and kill us that way, it was also going to make us fat. Fat. We were going to get fat if we ate butter. Margarine was so ubiquitous and so ever-present in people's homes of the times. It was such the norm to eat margarine instead of butter that in the same year that I got that first Hamill haircut, my elementary school did a production of The King and I. And the play director asked all the kids in school, or maybe not all of them, but any who could, to bring in their little empty margarine tubs, which would then be covered in like shiny gold lame fabric and used as the little traditional Siamese hats for all the kids who would be playing all the king's kids in The King and I. Remember the king? He had a lot of kids. They needed a lot of hats. Now, of course, we'd have empty margarine tubs laying around. There's no recycling of plastics back then. You either saved them to store stuff in, like pennies or your weed or your Valium, or you just threw them out. Now, they could have recycled them right back into more margarine, actually, because plastics and margarine only differ chemically by one molecule. Sort of like Jessica Simpson and Jessica Alba, or Donald Rumsfeld and Joseph Goebbels. Now that would have been some forward thinking by the food industry, turning those tubs right back into margarine. We could have eaten our own garbage instead of eating their garbage. And incidentally, I wanted to play one of those King's kids. I wanted to sing Getting to Know You. I wanted to dance around with Anna. But they needed the kids' kids to be shorter than the sixth grade kids playing the adults. And for the first and only time ever in my life, I wasn't short enough. Now, I have never hit five feet as an adult, but I was too tall to play a little Siamese royal offspring in a margarine tub hat. So how did we go down that greasy, oily slope away from butter anyway and into that endless tub of margarine? How did we turn our backs on one of our oldest Food, something so nutritious, so pure, so clever, and so useful in its properties for cooking and preserving. Well, let's first, let's look at butter. What is it? How is it made? Where does it come from? Do you remember last week when I was talking about my students and how some of them will do things like when a recipe calls for lemon juice, they'll go and look for the bottle of lemon juice, or when we need to whip cream for something, they'll go look for the can in the fridge. Remember I was talking about that? 
you know, because I teach in a culinary school. Well, I've also asked them on occasion to tell me how butter is made or where it comes from. And they can only hazard a vague guess. They kind of know it's a dairy product, but from there, often they get kind of lost. Didn't they make butter in kindergarten as a class project? I did. We put cream in a jar, and then we started passing the jar around. Everybody's sitting on the floor in a circle, and we each gave it a good shake, and then you'd pass it along to your neighbor. And eventually, what happened? The butter coagulated into a lump. We strained it, and we had butter, and then we tasted it. And inevitably, there'd be a few kids who didn't like it because it didn't taste like the smooth, yellow, smeary stuff in the tub, which in their worlds was butter, the two having become synonymous or conflated, blurred into one. Yellow plastic tub with yellow-looking gelatinous product equals butter. I mean, even all the baking recipes that I used as a kid always would say, use half a stick, butter, or margarine. It was always there, the evil demonic stuff, positioned as a real alternative, butter or margarine. Now, those kids who never shook the jar, they grew up to be hairdressers or aspiring reality show stars or vice presidential candidates. So assuming that decades of foodiness butter product propaganda and endless foodiness butter alternative products have left most of us probably unable to answer the same question about how real butter is made, like in The Matrix, let me now take you into the realm of the real. Real butter, that is. Real actual butter is made by agitating, which is just a hoity-toity chefy word for shaking. Whole butter, I mean uh, uh, shaking whole milk and cream. Now, slightly fermented milk and cream is really what you want because that slightly fermented flavor gives your butter really good flavor and shelf life. So you shake it, basically. You agitate it, and you force the flat, the flat, force the fat globules to clump up and eventually separate into a mass. And that's what old-fashioned butter churns used to do. If you, Maybe you saw one in the museum when you went to the Colonial Museum, like we always did. And what you can do yourself in a food processor or even just in a jar, you don't need a butter churn. Or if you've ever tried to make whipped cream and you get too over-enthusiastic and you just start whipping too hard, you've wound up with butter. Your cream kind of whips and whips and whips and then it gets kind of dry and stiff looking and then suddenly it sort of collapses into this kind of watery mess. Hello, butter. Fat molecules are really, really stretchy and they can balloon out and encapsulate air, but only for so long. They can overstretch, and those balloons pop. And then the fat starts to clump together, and then the whey separates out. Hey, remember whey? Hey, whey from my show, Performance Doesn't Come in a Bottle. We talked a lot about whey on that show. Now, whey is what they used to call buttermilk. It was the stuff that was left over after the butter was made, and people drank the buttermilk, or they cooked with it, or they fed it to their pigs, which was very good for the pigs. Now they make buttermilk just by taking milk and culturing it with bacteria, because the way from industrial butter making is so much more valuable going into your protein powder and your protein bars. My mom, incidentally, grew up in Russia drinking buttermilk. She loved it. Now, she never hit five feet either, so... Maybe she should have been eating a few power bars instead. I don't know. Anyway, butter, like a lot of the real foods that were staples of our diets for centuries, butter is a totally simple thing to make and one of our earliest processed foods, but in a good way. When you turn milk and cream into butter, you remove the water. Water makes food spoil. 
it attracts microbes. You remove the water, you've got an extended shelf life. Think of a grape versus a raisin, right? Butter will stay fresh in a cool place for a lot longer than fresh milk will. And if you add some salt or you store it in some brine, it'll last even longer. And seriously, it is one of our original superfoods. You need to just forget everything you've ever been taught now, right now, about butter. Erase it, empty the trash, and listen to me. Back before we called food super, when all food was just pretty super, because it was just food, just by degree. But butter was super because it was rich, it was and is rich in short and medium chain fatty acids, which we really want, and very high in vitamins A and E. But here's a complexity alert. Ding. Only if that butter comes from grass-fed cattle. And if it's organic grass-fed butter, it'll also have another super nutrient, which is called vitamin K2. Now, back then when I was wearing the Sportin' the Dorothy Hamill, K2 was a brand of skis, which I think they still are. But vitamin K2 apparently has major heart-protecting power and consuming higher levels has been found to reduce the risk of prostate cancer by 35%. And you gentlemen know you don't want prostate cancer. You don't want some doctor sticking his finger up your butt and telling you you have cancer, right? And also, we now know that high-fat foods like butter promote satiety. I can't say that word, satiety. You know, fullness. A highfalutin term for feeling full. Which is a sensation which we all seriously lack because we've lost the ability to feel it because foodiness deliberately inhibits satiety, fullness. It makes us all just want to eat more and more and more. The point is that a little bit of good butter on a pile of vegetables will make us feel full and happy and not need to then eat a can of Pringles and a 40-ounce Gatorade. Although not in New York because you can't get the 40-ounce anymore. And you've heard me go on and on about omega-3s and omega-6s, right? Remember that? That the right ratio is good for your heart and the wrong ratio is bad for your heart. Well, grass-fed butter, which is to say butter that came out of milk from cow's weight grass, has a ratio of 1 to 1, 3s to 6s, which is good for your heart. Grain-fed butter, which comes out of milk that came from industrialized cows-fed grains, has a much more heavily tilted ratio toward the sixes, which is bad for your heart. Now, we need to keep our ratios of three to six around one to one, but most Americans are eating more like one to 20. So yet again, complexity alert. Ding. Foodiness has effed with real butter by effing with the cows. Now, for more information on how foodiness has made eating real foods unhealthy, please refer to episodes, You Are What Your Fish Ate, Superfoods Are Super Effed Up, and Ignorance is Bliss Until You Get Diabetes. We're going to take a very brief break here when we come back. More about butter. Very ancient saying, but a true and honest thought, that if you become a teacher... By your pupils you'll be taught As a teacher I've been learning You'll forgive me if I boast And I've now become an expert On the subject I like most Getting to know you Getting to know you Couldn't you picture me in my little margarine tub hat spinning around, around a sixth grade version of Julie Andrews with a little eyeliner on to try to make me look Asian? Couldn't you see it? 
I've never gotten over that. Anyway, welcome back to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wetz, your somewhat bitter host. We're talking about butter. Now, butter is a natural product. Natural. Margarine, other vegetable oil-based spreads aren't. Butter comes from nature. Margarine comes from a factory. Foodiness, butter-like products are made in factories where they make things like VCRs and Walkman and Rubik's Cubes and iPads and Pop-Tarts and Cool Whip and soy milk and stretchy fruit snacks and Kardashians. Now, yes, butter has calories. Of course it does. But so do all fats and all oils. And they all have right around 100 calories a tablespoon. But what butter doesn't have are trans fats, which are what margarine and all those other evil ones have or have had in the past. Most of them have had it removed. But butter isn't made from industrialized oils and chemicals and deodorizes and bleaches and dyes. Butter is made from cream and agitation, maybe a little salt. Trans fats are the really bad shit, though. That's the stuff that's killing us. Butter is benign. So we humans have been making and eating butter since the early days of dairy animal domestication, ever since we figured out that if we held this animal down and pulled on its little udder thing, we could get milk out of it. We could steal the milk from its young and eat it ourselves. And we're the only mammals who drink the milk of other mammals. How creepy is that? But we figured it out. And then we figured out that we could take this but- this milk and we could let it sit and the cream would rise to the top and then we could shake that cream up and turn it into something even more delicious. And we loved it and we thrived on it. And we even survived on it. And by the 1860s, butter had become so much in demand in France that Emperor Napoleon III offered prize money to someone who could come up with an inexpensive substitute to supplement France's inadequate butter supplies. Because the people needed their bill. And that's where it all began to go horribly, terribly wrong. So here's a little story that you can whip out at a cocktail party. But only like if it's a party in, you know, Brooklyn or Berkeley or Portland. They'll love it. Otherwise, it's just going to be a buzzkill. But just so you can know and feel superior about it, here's the backstory on margarine, okay? There was a French chemist whose name I cannot pronounce i speak a little bit of french but just look it up on wikipedia because i can't pronounce his name he claimed the prize with his invention of margarine in 1869 that was a long freaking time ago the first margarine was beef tallow beef tallow is just rendered beef fat but they took the beef tallow and they flavored it with milk and they colored it with carotene extract from carrots which they still do And then they worked it like butter. They kind of whipped it up, pressed it into sticks. That was the first margarine in the 1860s. But then vegetable margarine followed after the development of hydrogenated oils around 1900. That really was the year that the devil stuck his hoof into everything. Those hydrogenated oils are those evil trans fats that we know all about now. And those will kill you faster than smoking Newports while spraying Aquanet, while attempting a Hamel Camel, while on Vicodin and Svedka and tweeting and smoking all at the same time. Yep. You eat one pat of hydrogenated vegetable oil margarine and you will die faster than if you were doing all those other things. Trust me. And that's what Crisco is, by the way. You know Crisco in the can? Crisco is whipped up vegetable oils and hydrogen. It was invented also around 1900, same time, as a substitute 
for butter in baking uses. But according to my good friend Mike Schwartz, who's been on this show before, Mike Schwartz owns Bao Kombucha and Bao Fermented Products and is a good old friend of mine. When Mike has a little time on his hand, he likes to think up conspiracy theories just as a hobby. Now, Mike thinks that Crisco, which originally was heavily marketed to observant kosher-keeping Jews so that they could use it in their baking instead of butter because you know when you keep kosher, you have to separate your dairy meals from your meat meals. But now you could bake with Crisco and eat those baked goods with your meat meals. Mike thinks that that marketing of Crisco to Jews was the original and true final solution. You know the final solution? Hitler's plan that was like 40 years after the invention of Crisco. You know, the Nazis and death camps and all that. And I don't mean the invention of the nose job as the final solution. Mike thinks Procter & Gamble really wanted to wipe out all of us Hebraic types. You know, since we control the banks and everything. And so it would trick the Jews into baking with and eating Crisco as a covert way of doing us in. While Hitler was just still crawling around in diapers dreaming up his plan. It actually sounds totally plausible to me. I got to say. And of course, Crisco can also be used to tame flyaway and frizzy hair and as an emergency lube. But other than those complexities, using Crisco to kill off the Jews does not seem paranoid to me at all. I mean, you don't just overcook a burger, Jerry. Anyway, per capita butter consumption declined in most Western nations during the 20th century in large part because of the rising popularity of margarine, which is less expensive and until recent years was perceived as being healthier. In the United States, margarine consumption overtook butter during the 50s. And it's still the case today that more people eat butter, I mean, sorry, eat margarine than butter in the U.S. and the EU. Can you believe it? People still eat that shit, even in Europe, where they should know better. I could understand here, but in Europe. Anyway, now that we know how butter is made, thanks to the kindergarten class science activity, let's look at how margarine is made. Shall we? Now, everybody quiet down, please. I'm starting the film projector. Please do not fall asleep and please pay attention. Welcome to the wonderful world of margarine. Please put on your shiny gold tub hats and step right up to the factory viewing windows where we'll begin our tour. In order to make a solid fat out of liquid oil, manufacturers subject the oils to a process called partial hydrogenation. The oil is extracted under high temperature and pressure, and the remaining fraction of oil is removed with hexane solvents. Manufacturers then steam clean the oils, a process that removes all the vitamins and all the antioxidants, but of course, the solvents and the pesticides remain. These oils are mixed with a nickel catalyst, and then, under high temperature and pressure, they are flooded with hydrogen gas. What goes into the reactor is a liquid oil. What comes out of that reactor is a smelly mass resembling gray cottage cheese. Emulsifiers are mixed in to smooth out the lumps, and the oil is then steam cleaned once more to get rid of the horrible smell. The next step is bleaching to get rid of the gray color. At this point, the product can be called pure vegetable shortening, like Crisco. To make margarines and spreads, artificial flavors and synthetic vitamins are added. But the government doesn't allow the industry to add synthetic color to margarine. They must add a natural color, such as annatto, which comes from a seed. Such a comforting thought that it's naturally colored. The margarine or spread is then packaged into blocks and tubs and advertised as a healthy alternative to butter. 
Okay, lights back on, please. Everybody wake up. All right, class. So what did we just learn? Well, we learned that margarine and other factory-made fats are truly revolting. And more importantly, not food. Does anything in that process sound like they're making food? That is foodiness in its purest form. A synthetic doppelganger made to replace the real food and trick us into believing that the evil twin is better. Like the way religion has bamboozled all of us into thinking abstinence is better than sex or sobriety is better than a buzz or that Christian rock is better than the clash. I mean, isn't real better? Think about all the things that are better real. Not just butter, but what about like Parmesan cheese? Isn't Parmigiano-Reggiano from Italy better than Kraft sprinkles? Or isn't a good kosher hot dog better than a tofu dog? Or whipped cream instead of Cool Whip? Or a real friend better than a Facebook friend? Or what about breasts? Aren't real breasts better than implants? You don't have to answer that. And although for centuries butter was a delicious and valued staple of the American diet, it also came under a great deal of scrutiny when its high levels of saturated fat were associated with increased heart disease risk. Now, many people basically just accepted the demise of butter in stride. They rued the loss of its savory flavor, but agreed that its effect on the heart might be too high a price to pay. So, ignoring centuries of food culture and tradition people dutifully switched to margarine as researchers and nutritionists suggested because we know that those guys are always right. Then finally, the hazards of margarine came to light. Its high levels of trans fats packed a double whammy for heart disease by raising levels of LDL and lowering levels of HDL. And now nobody even really knows if you need either of those levels checked at all because everything is always wrong and everything changes. And That's why I now think I have orthorexia, because even I don't even know what to eat. Now, the truth is there was never any good evidence that using margarine instead of butter cut the chances of having a heart attack or developing heart disease. Making the switch was just like a well-intentioned guess, given that margarine has less saturated fat than butter, but it overlooked the dangers of trans fats. And nobody even really knows if saturated fat is actually bad for you either. Maybe it was like the way reality shows actually started off really well-intentioned, like PBS in the 70s with American Family or that British 7-Up series. But then it kind of all went downhill from there, and we wound up with My Fair Brady. So when it comes to real versus fake, the research has never really stood up. It was based on speculation and, of course, influence. The corn and soybean industries, who we know are the real evildoers in all of this, just had a shitload surplus of oil to use up and deep, deep pockets full of money to fund research. And of course, we know you can make research results conclude whatever you want for the right price. And so out went butter and centuries of deliciousness and nutritioniness and in came the granddaddy of foodiness, margarine. I mean, talk about being scammed. Talk about doing a major science experiment on an entire planet full of people. It's like Dr. Mengele on steroids, trying out evil medical ideas and theories on people, but this time on willing people who took the bait and said, yeah, I want spreadable. I want cheaper. I want to not have a heart attack. I want to believe. Believe in what? A false god? A made-up religion? A religion created in a factory a hundred years ago? Like Mormonism? One spread around like so much parquet on our toasted collective consciousness meant to trick us into trusting our food culture and or trick us into not trusting our food culture and history 
I mean, why heed 10,000 years of food and agricultural knowledge when those smarty pants eggheads at Procter & Gamble or Kraft seem to really know what's best for us? I mean, they, they care about us, right? They have our best interest at heart. And you know what? Surprise, surprise. Eating real butter actually makes you smart. Makes you smart. It contains lauric acid, which is known as a conditionally essential acid because it's only found in two things. Lauric acid is only found in milk products and it's found in coconut. And you don't produce it in your liver. Like other saturated fats, you have to eat it. Butter fat and coconut oil. And it's really crucial to our bodies. It's antimicrobial and anti-tumor and immune system supporting. And it makes you really smart like butyric acid, which is also found in butter and only butter and has antifungal and anti-tumor effects and is supposed to be really good for your brain. And it's really funny, actually, how nature designed things because if you think about it, like in the cooler parts of the world, we have grass for cows and we get our lauric acid that way. And in the hot parts of the world... Where there's no grass and no cows, there are coconut palms, the only other source of it. It's like nature said, okay, here's yours, and here's yours. Don't fuck it up. And yet big foodiness has demonized both sources. Butterfat and coconut oil have both been demonized because they want to eat their surplus corn and soybean oil, which keep us stupid which keep us buying foodiness products, which makes us dumber, which makes us sicker, which gets us on their pharmaceuticals, which makes us too tired to exercise. So we sit on the couch and we watch reality shows and we update our Facebook page and down and down and down the foodiness rabbit hole we fall. But it's easy because it's been greased up by all that margarine. But butter can get you out of the rabbit hole, not just by making you smarter, but by making you stronger. It has conjugated linoleic acid or CLA. She's also found in butter from pasture-fed cows, and it has strong anti-cancer properties, and it helps the promotion of muscle growth, and it prevents weight gain. It's like a performance drug, only it won't shrink your tangerines to the size of grapes. Now, butter is delicious, and it's good for you. And like I said, it makes you smarter. And maybe if we all ate more butter and less fakey stuff, we'd be in a lot less trouble right now. I don't know. We're so far down the slippery, greased-up, foodiness, butter rabbit hole that I think we've successfully killed off our ability to discern or even be cognizant of the difference between butter and margarine. I mean, there may be people alive today who don't realize that they are different products, like my students with the Cool Whip. Now, you know that Cool Whip's not a dairy product, right? You know that it's frozen, foamed-up Crisco. You know that, right? Or that you go to the movie theater and that yellow oil they squirt on your popcorn... That's not butter. That hasn't been butter for like 25 years. Buttery topping isn't butter. You know that, right? Buttery flavored spreads, not butter. That I can't believe this shit is actually sold as food and you don't know the difference and it comes in a squeeze bottle or tub yellow spread. That's not butter either. It isn't. They aren't. Now, of course, you know that. You listen to this show. You're my smart, aware listeners. You don't need foodiness. You don't live down the greasy rabbit hole. And if you did, you wouldn't be listening to me right now because you couldn't tune in because your fingers would be too slippery or you'd be dead from a heart attack from all the squeezable parquet you put on your white toast back in the 80s. But there are people, unfortunately, who don't know the difference, who think it's actually the same stuff. The people who eat Cool Whip. I don't even have to speculate that there are people because I know it. I've had them as students. And since I love to tell you my stories, here's a story that I'm going to send you home with today. 
I know I'm running out of time, but you need to hear this. A few years ago, I had a student. I won't tell you his name. He was Haitian. That has nothing to do with this, except that I like to imitate his accent. So this Haitian student comes to me one day and he says, Chef, chef, back in my country, our food, our food is, it just tastes so much better. It's so much more organic. I think our food is so much more organic. And I said, well, that's likely because you're probably growing it on very small farms and fertilizing it with, you know, pig shit and stuff like that. So yeah, probably does taste better. And he goes, yeah, and we have this butter. We have this very, very special, special butter that we eat. And it's, it's so delicious. And it doesn't taste like any of the butter I've ever had here. It's so much better. I was like, wow, really? And I'm thinking, okay, Haiti was like a French colony. Maybe they do have some really special French butter technology or something. I was like, huh, maybe he's got something. I said, oh, why don't you bring it in? He's like, oh, yes, I can get it here in the Haitian market. I will bring it in so you can taste it. This butter is better than anything I've ever eaten here. It's very special butter. It's much more organic. Okay, bring it in. So he comes in next day with a little round plastic tub that says right on the label, margarine. I rest my case. So let's get real before we run out of time. With foodiness, butter products abounding. How do you tell the real from the fake? Well, of course, when you can, you want to buy organic pastured grass-fed butter. Now, not just organic, because organic butter is fine, but it could still be grain-fed. So you're not going to get the CLA and the omega-3s and all that great stuff that you get from the grass. Organic is the first step, and that's good, but grass-fed is the gold standard. If the Olympic gold medal that Dorothy Hamill had won was going to be made out of butter, it would be made out of organic grass-fed butter. And then once you buy it, use it. Put it on your eggs. Put it on your asparagus. Put it on your fish. Put it on your oatmeal. Put it on your popcorn. Throw away that stupid air popper from the Rubik's Cube days and get a stovetop popper and melt some butter and pour it all over that popcorn. And throw away your cooking spray and your nonstick pans. Banish the fat-phobic relics of the 90s and bring back the butter. And if you're just starting to cook again after a couple of decades of a foodiness-induced coma, it's a great way to cheat. Now, when my co-producer, Chris Nutter, first started making his own steak every Sunday night again, after years of not cooking, he complained to me that it was a little dry because I made him eat grass-fed beef. And it is a little dry. So I said, you know what? Get some good butter. Throw a chunk of it on the steak after you eat it. And you'll love it. And he did it. And he loves it. And you know what? Now his steak is like my hair in the 70s. Buttery. It's so easy. Every chef knows that trick. So let's play Little House on the Prairie. You know, that was my favorite show. I'll be Laura, okay? Hey, Ma, fire up the churn. It's time to start making some butter. How else am I going to be able to write a series of bestsellers when I'm in my 60s? Let's make some butter, Ma. Eat your real butter, damn it. Your heart and your brain will thank you for it. They'll love you so much. And just think of poor Denise. Maybe if she'd eaten more butter, maybe today, she'd be Secretary of State. So if you don't want to spread on the shit, make sure you keep tuning into Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. We're out of time. Thanks to my co-producer, Chris Nutter, and thanks to Joe in the control room, and thanks to Marishka Bland this week for the research, and we'll see you next week.
Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.